You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 111 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Ilea Danner-Grubbs, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Katie Norman-Grubbs. Hello, Victoria and Katie. Hi. Hey. Let's introduce ourselves for anyone who's new to the program. Katie, will you go first? Absolutely. I am Katie Norman-Grubbs. I live in Sugarland, Texas, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, um, and our four children. I am an uh, adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University and a women's Bible study teacher. Awesome. And Victoria? Hi, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I have a PhD in literature and gender and sexuality studies from Florida State University. I currently live in Woodstock, Georgia with my husband, Michael Farmer, also of the Christian Humanist Podcast. And we are both currently unemployed. So uh, my life these days is job search, networking groups, and job applications, and a whole lot of prayers. Uh, So hopefully I will have good news to report on that front sometime soon. And we are definitely praying for you as well. Uh, And my name is Ilea Danner-Grubbs. I live in Trussville, Alabama with my husband Brian and our two young children. I am an elementary educator by profession, but now I'm homeschooling my kids and I work in ministry at our local church. So we are here today to discuss Darcy Lockman's uh, new book, All the Rage, subtitled Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. And before we get into the book, I wanted to um, kind of acknowledge that this topic can be a sensitive one. So I think it's important to say at the outset that we're not here to bash our husbands or to malign men in general. And we're not even here to decide on some kind of definitive biblical gender role or whether or not men or should or shouldn't do housework or childcare across the board. Uh, the purpose of this conversation as it relates to the book is specifically to look at a big cultural picture of expectations and realities that exist within relationships where both people have expressed ideas of equality. So we're going to try to keep it in that framework there. Um, And to that point, let's begin by sharing our own expectations and realities in our marriage so we know where everyone's coming from. Um, Victoria, could you tell us a little bit about where you're coming from in your family and any expectations or divisions of labor that you and your husband uh, have established? Sure. Uh, As you said, this is such a a sensitive topic, and I I did, uh, before I sat down to record today, I had a conversation with my husband where I said, look, uh, you know we've been reading this book for the show, here are the things that I'm planning to say, is that okay with you? Because I just, I I feel like this is such a personal uh, topic, and I'm talking about our personal lives. So I agree with with everything you said. Um, As I said in my intro, currently both my husband and I are unemployed, so our current household division of labor is a little different than it was six months ago. 
when we were both working and has shifted in various ways throughout our marriage when one of us has had less flexible work schedules than the other. Uh, When I was working part-time, I did more housework than when he was still teaching and I was working a nine-to-five non-academic job. Then he sort of stepped in and did more housework. So at this point in our marriage, we go back and forth sometimes. Um, Another important thing I think that I should say about our current living situation is that because we're both unemployed and we moved out of state um, back home to Georgia, we're currently living in my in-law's basement. And living with my mother and father-in-law has really made me think about the generational difference in participation of housework um, and make me be super grateful for the things that Michael does and the work that he puts into equitable participation um, because, and my mother-in-law has said this in recent conversation, like his father just doesn't do that because that's not the expectation. Um, So I think those things are important to talk about. The last thing I'll say is um, we've been married 10 years and we've had a lot of conversations about this division of labor and so what we do has evolved. When we were first married, Um, It was very much what Lachman says, you know, you do the chores you like, I'll do the chores I like, and more of that kind of falls uh, on the woman. That was true at the beginning of our marriage. Now it's much more even. A couple of examples. I do the cooking, he does the baking. Uh, In all instances, whoever doesn't cook cleans up. I shop and meal plan, he does the laundry. Um, I clean bathrooms, and he cleans mostly the rest of the house. Uh, So I I think we're trying to divide things up evenly, though one thing I will say that this book has opened me up to discussing and thinking about more is the idea of the kind of mental planning logic work, um, which I think does fall on me a lot of the time. And the idea that what you want is your husband to notice things that need to be done and do them without being asked because there's like an extra dimension of work in the asking him to do something. Uh, That's definitely been a recent topic of conversation uh, since I read the book. So that's a little bit about how we do things. Yeah, those are great points. Katie, what about you? Our, Our kind of arrangement of household tasks has definitely shifted over time too. When we first got married, we were both graduate students um, who were teaching and students. So back then, I would say it was very kind of down the middle. We were both cooking. We were both cleaning. Um, I have always done all the laundry, um, mostly because I enjoy laundry. Um, and, you know, I when we uh, – because for the first probably – three or four years we were married, um, we didn't have a, a washer and dryer. So I would just, you know, I enjoyed kind of packing up the clothes and going to the laundromat when we lived in Athens and taking a book or whatever. Um, so that was a chore that I enjoyed. Like Victoria said, I took the, I took the chores that I enjoy and David doesn't mind dishes and I really don't love dishes. So I'm always happy to, um, to unload dishes. Um, once we started having children that kind of shifted, um, because once we had, well, actually, while I was, I was pregnant with our, our first child, we had moved um, to Kansas. And I, at that point, David was working full time. He was um, in a, his first professor gig. I was working part time at the campus library. So um, I started taking on more then because I was only working part time. 
Um, and then once she came, um, since I had her, um, the only other time I've spent working outside the home that wasn't part-time is um, I did spend a year in Kansas later on um, when we had one kid. I was pregnant with our second kid um, and I was working technically, I think it was like three quarters time on campus because um, I'd gotten back in the classroom. So, um, I mean, you know, it was called three quarters time because I, w- I worked four days a week um, and I was home on Fridays with her and I didn't stay till five every day. I think I worked like nine to three, four days a week. Um, but I was still teaching what we would call a full load of classes. I was still teaching like four classes. Um, so, you know, time-wise I didn't have to be on campus as much, but anyway, since, you know, um, in the last few years I've been, what I would say is I've been full-time at home. Um, and also I've been teaching because I teach online now. So I'm not teaching in the classroom anymore. It's all online, which means it's completely um, asynchronous. I can do it whenever I want to. Um, And so if someone asked me, I would say I'm a full-time stay-at-home mom because that's my primary task. Um, And then I'm also also teaching in an adjunct capacity. Um, So I am handling most of the kids' kind of daily lives though. Um, and we'll talk about this later when we talk about the different types of husbands outlined in the book, but, um, we definitely do have parents. I'm, I'm not kind of doing all parenting tasks. Like some of these dads described in the book don't do anything. That's not how it goes in our house, but we do have things that we have kind of, cause we've had conversations about it. Like Victoria said, and we've had things that we have chosen to kind of, uh, work out a scheme for, for example, um, we, you know, kind of both help with getting dinner together for the kids every night. Um, and then David handles the boys, um, most of the getting them to bed. Like he does their baths, which I appreciate because it's really, really messy and there's tons of water splashing and it's a little bit out of control sometimes. So he does boy bath time, um, and gets them down. He reads them their stories. He sings them their songs. He pretty much is responsible for their, um, bedtime routine. And then I usually then take the girls or, you know, if I'm working with a baby and he finishes up with the boys and I'm not finished with the baby, then he goes and he does art and story or whatever. So, you know, we kind of split up the parenting stuff. Before I go any further, I just wanted to say that I actually, especially in thinking about household work, I'm really grateful that my husband works a job that allows him to basically be home around five every day. Cause I have a lot of friends, especially here in Houston, whose husbands work on the oil field. So they'll be gone. The husband will be gone for three weeks completely gone and then home for three weeks all the time. And so I can't imagine trying to work that out, like in terms of who's doing what, um, you know, or sometimes, or even there's another lady I know at church, her husband is gone for five weeks, home for five weeks. So, um, or I have other friends whose husbands work in car sales. And so they're, you know, they're gone six, six days a week for like 10 hours a day. So, um, you know, I, I definitely would say that we are privileged in that David is able to be home um, around five every day. So he's the, able to be around in the evening and help with the kids. Um, and as far as the other kind of housework stuff, um, you know, I'm doing um, more housework than he is because I'm not working outside the home full time. Um, I've always done the laundry Um, but he does a lot of dishes he handles and we kind of split it up too by who's better at each thing, um, in some ways. And also just, um, you know, by inclination too. David handles like all the bill pay, setting up all the online bill pay and doing all that stuff. I do all the grocery shopping. Um, we kind of decide together what we want to eat. Um, you know, so we kind of, and, and, 
you know, that's not always the best to totally divide tasks up like that, though, because I know there have been times where, like, he was paying the bills, so he kind of knew what the budget was, but I was buying the groceries, but we didn't really talk <laughs> about, like, how much I should spend. So I think we could do better to share more of those those two tasks specifically with each other. Um, but, uh, you know, so we've, we kind of um, play it by ear and in some ways. And the other thing is I do also – I do – a lot of that mental load stuff with regard to the kids. Um, I don't feel the same frustration with that. Um, I think as a lot of women described in the book in part because, um, our kids, because two of our kids have special needs. Um, a lot of times I end up needing to like fight with insurance company people. Or for example, um, in the last two weeks, um, I have had to have two meetings at my daughter's school because her first grade teacher does not understand autism and it's not been working out. And so, you know, I had to go to the school and I had to meet with the vice principal and we had these meetings. They've been fantastic. They're moving her to a different class. It's all great. But those types of interactions I am good at and I'm not afraid of them. And I'm, I'm comfortable in that scenario. My husband is not. And so I would rather do that myself. Um, not because I think he would bomb it. I think he would be fine, but I know that he would be intensely uncomfortable in that scenario. And I think that the outcome will be better if school authorities or insurance people or whoever is sensing confidence and ease, you know, in the person that they're having this confrontation with. Um, and so, you know, that's another place where we've kind of gone with who is stronger, who's better at this. Um, and so I handle that stuff, not because I'm the woman or not because I'm the mom, but because I'm better at it. Um, and when you've got, you know, kids with special needs and you're having to advocate like that, the person who's better at it needs to do it. And if that's the mom, then that's fine. And I'm going to do that, even if it may from the outside look a little bit stereotypical. Um, but I, I think, think the question yeah. that Lockman would ask, and I'm, I'm not trying to shoot down what you said. I think what you said is true. I know the both of you. I know your personality differences. Um, so I think what you said is true. But I think the question that Lockman would ask is, are you better at it because A, you've had more practice, you've had to do it more, and B, because people, she talks about that sort of mama bear default parenting thing. I think she would ask, are you better at it because you do it more? And is that sort of a self-fulfilling cycle? Um, I would say, I mean, that could be part of it. And, and, and in our very specific case, cause I think she's not wrong about that. A lot of times I think people are, you know, better at things just cause they do them more. In our case, I think it really is a function of personality because my mom is the same way. And like, and, but as is my dad, both my parents were like that. And I kind of, so I think I kind of got that from them that like, scrappy like I and, and I even as a child I, I was always like enraged by any kind of unfairness like so I mean I think I think it's mostly personality um and I think that that I think it's personality that makes me want to take it on I'll say it that way it's personality that makes me want to have the fight maybe I'm better at it because I've done it more that's probably a function of nature and nurture with me um, and maybe the same with him, you know, I think by inclination, by personality, he's not inclined to want to call up and have a fight with the insurance company. So he doesn't do it. So he hasn't built as many of those skills. Um, but we, it's not like we, it's not like we, he never dips a toe in that area. Like when, with Arden's teacher, particularly, you know, we've been having these issues with the teacher and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just me 
that I wasn't just hating on her that, you know, cause I want to be fair to her. I, I wanted to make sure that the way I was perceiving her was actually real. And so he, I had him or I had him, whatever. I'm not his boss. He went to the parent teacher open house night. Cause I wanted him to meet her. So that, cause I wanted him to check me, to balance me. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just doing my whatever nature, nurture, whatever made me meant to the mama bear. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just that, that really I was perceiving her, um, her personality in a way that was driven by accuracy and not just anger that my child is having a bad time. And so in that case, we, that was kind of a team effort of what do we both think about the teacher before we move forward? That's a great question though, Victoria. Uh, Katie, I'm going to have you call the insurance company for me the next time I have an issue. Dude, I'll um, you. I don't mind. Yeah, there you go. Um, I am a stay-at-home mom now, as I said, but I worked for uh, seven years before we had children, and my husband and I established before we were even married that we wanted to share our housekeeping responsibilities equally, um, like most of the people in the book who were interviewed, but honestly, that really never actually played out. Um, we we even established certain things that were my responsibility and his, like both of you guys said. Um, but somehow I always ended up just doing most of them or they just didn't get done. And um, honestly, I would say, and Brian would too, that this is the number one issue that we have argued about in our 15 years of marriage, before children and after children. Um, it's gotten better through the years with a lot of communication, a lot of patience, but it, it is still a big issue for us to this day. Um, and like it says over and over in the book, like the women say, like my husband does a lot. He he participates a lot in the house and with the kids. And so I identify with the ladies who feel guilty, not just being happy with with that. And um, but the reality is that, you know, the situation, especially at the beginning and, and kind of as we've gotten better, like the situation was not what was established as the expectation. So there's always that tension there. Um, but let's move on to the book. Uh, Katie, will you go over some of the main terms and ideas that are discussed in the book to kind of get us started on that? Sure. Um, so some of the um, some of the the terms that we wanted to talk about are and, and some of them are are set up in opposition to each other, but then other ones are kind of more of on a spectrum. Okay, so um, one of the kind of dichotomy set up in the book um, and in the section where um, it's particularly set up with these two ideas together, Lockman is, is talking about a particular researcher, Paula England. And, um, but one of the kind of dichotomy set up is the idea of individualism versus essentialism. So individualism being kind of the right to equal opportunity. We are two individuals who are going to be performing discrete tasks. So we are going to divide those tasks up equally right? Um, versus what she calls gender essentialism, which is the idea, uh, the more kind of, and this is, you've probably heard this a million times, listeners, because it's, you know, traditionally been in our culture a lot, the idea that men, women and men have, quote, fundamentally different interests and skills. So this would be anytime you hear people say things like women are naturally better at being parents because they're natural nurturers, or men are naturally built for working, you know, in uh, outside the home or, you know, for leadership or things like that. Um, a lot of these ideas of gender essentialism are very current in the complementarian world, which is the world that I'm kind of living in. Um, and when I first, when we first started talking about this episode, I was not really loving the idea of these two ideas in opposition to each other. But now that I finished the book and thought about it more, I absolutely understand why um, they're being placed in opposition to each other because the individualistic idea, again, is to me kind of suggesting discrete tasks that then um, can be applied to either person. And 
either person is equally capable of them in that framework. And she talks a lot about that in the book, about ideas of, you know, is there such a thing as natural biological maternal instinct or is it socially constructed, things like that. Um, whereas the essentialist idea from the beginning is saying this is not going to be an equal distribution because these people aren't equal. They have different skills, different interests, um, you know, and so it's going to look they're always going to look very, very different. Um, as far as um, the other kind of terms that were set up in the book that I think are helpful, too, um, is there's a part of the book, um, and I think it's around page 136, 137, where um, she is quoting another researcher and laying out different kind of three different types of husbands um, that they came across in the research. And um, the three different types listed are slackers, helpers, and sharers. And I'll define those real fast. So slackers are, are, you know, obviously the worst group. Slackers are the guys who are chilling on the couch watching television while mom, who has also worked a full-time job that day, is handling everything childcare related or housework related um, for people who aren't parenting. Um, that would be slackers. Helpers are the guys who will happily help when asked. Um, you know, if mom says, Hey, could you do this with a kid? Dad's happy to do it, but won't help unless asked. Um, and then the third group are sharers, what she calls sharers. Sharers are, this sounds like a little bit of an oxymoron to me, but the way the sharers are described as, um, guys who are fully involved in parenting when other commitments to work or leisure aren't getting in the way. So I guess that's not that's not meaning fully committed to parenting on a time level, right? But when home, when in the domestic space, these men are jumping in to help, fully committed to doing all the parenting tasks, not waiting to be asked, um, and they're doing this if they're not at work, if they're not, you know, doing something else, they're fully involved. So those were the kind of three groups. Um, Leah, you'd asked why is it better to have three categories rather than, you know, a kind of two two group, you know, a group, you know, two different groups of guys who do nothing and guys who do everything. And mm -hmm. I do think, it, I think it's much better to have those three categories. Cause I think that most guys who are trying to be decent husband and fathers, at least most of the time will at least try to be in the helper group. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that I know any man personally who's like a proud slacker dad. Right. Um, now, now, I think there are dads who are slacker dads who maybe don't realize they're slacker dads and think they're a helper dad, but they're not really. But um, I think certainly that's certainly fathers in the generation before us would have been, I think, a higher percentage of what she calls slackers. Agreed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true. So, yeah, I, I liked the three groups. I liked the idea of, of more of a spectrum. What did you guys think did you, about the any of these terms, the individualism versus essentialism or these different types of, of dads? I want to talk about the three types of dads for a minute. Um, I, I should say, I didn't say this in the intro, um, since I'm the only panelist without children uh, on today's show, my experience is different from yours. That is a thing I'm not having to juggle. Um, but uh, I was parented by two full-time working people, so I feel like I can speak to this a little bit. Um, in, in terms of the models that I had. And what I find really interesting about the sharers who I think, given her three options, are the best option, um, they still fall short in terms of equity because they, um, they join in in parenting as much as they can when they're home. But in talking about um, the different ways women and men are viewed in the workplace, Lachman makes it very clear that um, 
women's identity as mothers in the workplace makes everyone around them assume that they're going to sacrifice some of their professional involvement and goals and if they don't they're not just a bad mother they're a bad woman and men don't have the same pressure so therefore Mm -hmm. they share when nothing else is in the way but not when it is Um, so I, I thought that that was really interesting in terms of the pressure it puts on women and the pressure it puts on men too in terms of if you, you know, don't have that expectation of emotional availability all the time, like, that's, you know, your persona at work is different, your persona at home is different, like, that, it feels like pressure um, from both directions. As I've said many times on this program, patriarchy hurts men, too. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And the the other side of that is the burden of the, like, household manager um, role that's put on women, even when you have a, a sharer husband, you still have this idea that the woman is the one who is kind of orchestrating everything for him to be able to share. You know, and and obviously it's going to look different in different people's um, houses. And and the more he is sharing responsibility and actually jumping in and participating instead of waiting to be asked, you know, that that helper thing, like that's where the household manager role is going to kind of come off of her is the more that he becomes a sharer and less of a helper. But still, you know, if she's the one that has to leave work when the kid gets sick in the middle of the day, if she's the one who has to, you know, arrange the appointments and and be the one to you know, plan the meals and all that, there's still that aspect of household manager that is interfering in her job. Whereas, like you said, he he gets to choose his his participation is is discretionary, if that makes sense. Yeah, the the number of times she said, I should have counted, but in the book many times she says, when people say parent, they mean mother. Yes. And I thought, whoa, like, that's really true, and I don't think I've thought about that as much as I should. Mm-hmm. And going back to the discussion of individualism versus essentialism, the the idea of role justification that she talks about, um, where, well, you're just better at that. So I'm just going to let you do that when it pertains not to something specific, like fixing the dishwasher, but to something generic, like child rearing, you know, um, those, that, that idea of the essentialism of, if you assume that women are essentially better at caring for people, that's going to inform your entire perception, even if, and remember that all of these interviews that she's doing are with people who said they wanted equality in these shared responsibilities at the beginning, right? This is not, this is not an issue of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. These are people who said at the beginning, well, I want, we're going to share everything. When we have kids, we're going to, we're going to share all of it. But then when, what actually happened was they fall back on this issue of, well, you know, she's just, she's a mom. She knows what what to do and and or she you know and this idea that really parent means mom and so I, you know dad eh, well there you go he's he's there when you need him or or whatever but it's not the essential like i can do ever i can change a diaper you know there's nothing magical about being a woman that makes you better at changing a diaper but but that kind of um that kind of assumption is there um what else did y'all think about this the those these are really like the key points that underline this book. So that's why I want to spend a little bit of time talking about them. Did y'all have anything else to add to that? I would say that 
as someone in the complementarian sphere, obviously that is an area where there is a lot of gender essentialism. And I think that often in that sphere, there is, because there are gradations, right? So that, you know, you'll, you'll, I mean, there absolutely are complementarians who will say all women are, should be helpers because all women were made to be helpers to all men and nonsense like that. Um, But even, you know, very, what we might call thin complementarians, like, like David and I, you know, we're still, we're still, I mean, you know, I took on the home role mostly because it was important to me that that was not something that he said he wanted me to do. I, you know, I decided I wanted to be very small, but, um, also I think that, the the when she talks about you know people say they want things to be because you're right Leah all these are all couples who said we want to be absolutely equal but I think one reason that people still fall into those roles is partially what she calls I think they call it like generational lag and you mentioned this too Victoria that you know even if people say this is what they want their models did something different their parents did something different or you know whatever the the kind of the stuff that they saw the models they saw growing up like i remember one time when um our first was really small i got kind of frustrated with david because he would always help when i asked him to but he wouldn't always with our first kid now this is not true anymore but just with our first kid he wouldn't always jump in and do something like change the diaper whatever and i kind of had to step and i stepped back and asked myself one day because i was getting real mad about it and i said well hold on did he ever see that happen in his house ever because if not, why do I think it would ever occur to him? Like, you know, and if, if he didn't have the model for that, that's that generational lag. Like, he leaves it to me because without even realizing it, he, you know, he never saw that done at home. Now, as more time has passed, right, now we're on kid four. That doesn't happen anymore. He jumps right in because now he's gotten into the groove or whatever of doing it. And like you said, there's, no, there's not that learned incompetence. He does it all the time, so he knows he can do it, so he does it. You know, but I would say that if it's interesting reading this book as a complementarian, because I think that the one thing that they talk about in the book that I would say, which, and you know, Darcy Lockman would hate on me for this. One thing that I see in the book that I think that a complementarian would say, well, yeah, um, and I think that is actually true, is that in the book they talk about she talks about that kind of individualistic autonomy idea. Men just think about themselves versus women thinking in a more, I think they called it like communitarian or communalist. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would say that even though I am way too Dorothy Sayers to be super essentialist about gender, even though I'm a complementarian, the one thing I think I would agree with is that I would say that most of the time, again, I'm never going to say all women are all men. Most of the time, often women tend to be more communitarian, whether they're mothers or not. And which and and then then men sometimes are again not all men not all time but I do think that that's one reason that it, I I don't think it's just social conditioning. That, that was going to be my question: Is do you think that's because of our like society? No, I don't think it's just no. I don't think it's just social conditioning because I think that if you because you see it in. That just that part, not the women are better mothers, women are natural mothers, not any of that, just the idea of women thinking about more than themselves, right? Because all these women in the book will be like, my husband, he doesn't even notice that the kids and the thing and the stuff and he doesn't see it, right? Like I have to show him whatever. And a lot of that is learned incompetence. A lot of that is cultural and a lot of that is socially constructed. But I also think that there is something 
in women that is usually women notice more other people. And I don't, I don't know how else I want to say that, but I, I, it is difficult for me. I don't know that I can think of a culture. I know that she talked about cultures where women are the competitive ones. I totally get that, you know, so I don't think, you know, but if you look across cultures, I would say that across cultures, across time, across all over different places, all over the world, you will see often women working cooperatively or, you know, helping or looking out for other people in ways that the men in that culture don't. And so I'm uncomfortable saying that 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 just that one thing is always socially constructed because it's everywhere. Now, does that mean that women should all have to be helpers? No. And it doesn't mean that we're all going to be or that we all should be. I just think that that's one that that I think that it feels a little bit. um, I don't know. I, I feel like you can't say every bit of this, every single bit of it is socially constructed when you see it in various societies, in various cultures, in various times. But that's just me. And, you know, I'm not, again, I don't think it has to be prescriptive either. To me, it's a descriptive thing, something that you can see happen. Can I, can I jump I was in gonna, here real yeah, quick? I was going to ask you if you wanted to jump in and respond as our resident sociologist. Go for it. Um, so I, I want to talk about something that is not in the book um, versus the things that are just riffing on what Katie said. And I was hoping you would um, say that. Katie, since you are um, probably the most complimentarian person on panel right now, I think it's good um, that you made that point. Uh, I found it a lack, but an unsurprising lack, that Lachman does not, um, through all her attempts to be as intersectional as possible in this book, talk about religion in any meaningful way at all. Um, yeah. She, she talks mm-hmm. about race. She talks about class. Um, she even talks about ability for a bit. Um, Katie, you mentioned um, that there's a whole kind of comparative anthropology um, section of the book as well, where she talks cross-culturally. Um, there's quite a bit of standard sociology. So uh, the part of me that is sociologically trained was happy to see lots of familiar names like Arlie Hochschild and Michael Kimmel and... Uh, and uh, Betty Friedan and people who are, are sort of um, cut their teeth in the sociological interview version of things. But even though she works really hard to talk about sociology and anthropology and race and class, um, what's the deal with there being no religion here? Because religion certainly shapes a lot of people's views of, of gender and the way households should be shaped. Do you think it's because... Um, a smaller percentage of um, our society is actively religious? Do you think it's the uh, feminism equals secularism assumption that we deal with so often? What what do you guys think is going on there? That's a really good point. I was wondering if it had to do with the idea that she kind of, like we said, established from the beginning that these are people who decided on the outset that things were going to be equal. And I wonder if she kind of dismissed overtly religious integration of that concept because she either assumed or came across too many couples who had established generals, you know, that, that they had established from the beginning. Well, you know, if they were complementarian or whatever, that, that there were different, that they, they believed in essentialism. They, they had different ideas of, of what they were going to do as men and women. And so that would kind of pre- exclude them from her subset that she's trying to get as a, as a sample. I suppose that's true, but, like, she didn't interview one couple that said, 
we decided we wanted our marriage to be equal because that's the way God created us. Like those people, you know, egalitarian religious people who go into marriage that way exist. I, but it's not like she, like, let's not even talk about Christianity. Like she doesn't talk about, uh, Actually, she might talk about Hasidic Jews for like half a second. I don't think she talks about. Um... Yeah, she talks right. about her own Jewish family when she okay. was growing up and the mm-hmm. gender roles that work there. But honestly, if she doesn't want to talk about religious people and how they're doing their marriage roles, that could be part of it. Because she talks about being a child and the women doing all the work at like, you know, holiday dinners and and then also doing all the cooking and all the cleaning. And I don't know. And part of it, too, is she talks about she does talk about doing research on Facebook and stuff. But a lot of her interviews she did with people, friends of hers or friends of friends. And if she's not kind of in circles where she's acquainted with any religious people, then she maybe just is not having access. Maybe she doesn't, you know, maybe she's not familiar, doesn't know to interview, you know, some Christian egalitarian couples because maybe she doesn't know any, you know, that, but that didn't even occur to me, Victoria. That's fair. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that that kind of self-selection that you're talking about is to, to put my sociologist hat back on for a second, um, is a real flaw if you're dealing with the ethnographic interview model, which she is building about half of this book on. Um, and ethnographies are, and interviews are lovely and great to shed a personal dimension on things, um, which I think does make this book much warmer um, than it could be. But also the problem there is that you're self-selecting your interview pool based on demographic characteristics that make the pool smaller, like you were saying, friends and friends of friends. Um, so I'm, I'm sure she had to use Facebook and reach further for things like racial and class Um Variants. So yeah, I I think that is um, that's a, a bit of the flaw with the um, a flaw kind of baked into the interview model that she chose for other positive reasons. Well, while we're talking about statistics and all of that, why don't you go ahead and uh, give us some uh, information about the kind of way that she approached it, some of the statistics, the studies, and um, the demographics that she talks about. Sure. Um, so this book is mostly a I think really good, about as good as it could be, uh, melding of two genres. One, um, academic, mostly scientific or sociological, studies about gender roles and division of labor and how both of those things develop, uh, next to um, interviews with working mothers, some of whom are married and some of whom are not. So she's combining a very formal research method with a less formal, more personal research method. I think that's a good move because they work together to show how norms and experiences shape and form one another uh, to contribute to gender inequity together. There are so many academic studies cited in the book that I cannot come close to mentioning them all. So what I've decided to do here is to give three examples that the book cites that show the breadth of the formation of gender inequity uh, throughout kind of parts of life. So I'm going to talk about one study she cites about young childhood, one study she cites about women in the workplace, and one about uh, marriage and parenting just to kind of cover the whole spectrum. But everybody should read this book. It's full of um, incredible and infuriating data. So the first study I'm going to talk about is on page 105 of the book. It's a study of 
two-year-olds, boys and girls, and how they interact with each other. Uh, She says, uh, Observational studies of two-year-olds in preschool classrooms demonstrate that while girls change their play behavior in response to the wishes of classmates of both sexes, boys do not allow themselves to be influenced by girls. Kids' social behavior becomes more sophisticated around age three when they begin to try to control their friends' activity with increasing frequency. As attempts at influence increase with age, Girls and boys begin to engage in different ways, girls with more polite suggestions and boys with more direct demands. Over time, boys become less and less responsive to gently delivered requests, and while boys continue to wield influence over all children, girls can generally only influence other girls. This is starting at the age of two or three, so we're learning really early that uh, girls lead in this way and boys lead in this way. Uh, So that's the first um, study I wanted to talk about because I think that it contributes to later social patterns, especially uh, patterns that you see in uh, things like business meetings and the workplace. Uh, The second study that I wanted to talk about um, is similar. It appears on page 212 in the book and is a Harvard Business Review study. Uh, on gender in the workplace. It talks about who gets promotions and why and says that um, women volunteer for workplace tasks um, that the HBR calls it workplace housework, tasks that don't lead to promotion. Um, They volunteer for these tasks at a higher rate than men do, but when controlled for single-sex groups, like if the group was only men and um, they were asking for volunteers for this kind of workplace housework, men would volunteer. But if it's a mixed-sex group, men don't volunteer because they know that the women will do it for them. Uh, When women aren't present, that sort of crutch isn't there. It really shows um, how much we're socialized that uh, this idea that Lachman repeats over and over, the idea that, like, if women don't do X, Y, Z, nobody else is going to do it, so we might as well do it. Um, And I I think that, I think you can see, maybe not a straight line, but at at least a slanted line from... um, boys influence boys and girls, and girls just influence girls, to this um, kind of women volunteer, um, and men only volunteer if they don't. Um, I I feel like those are are pretty connected behaviors. Uh, Finally, the third study that I wanted to talk about, and then I'll let uh, the rest of you respond, is about um, housework and parenting specifically. It's early in the book, Uh, on page 32, and she says, uh, A 2008 study out of Queensland, Australia, found that women increase their time spent on routine housework by about six hours a week after giving birth to their first child, compared to uh, no increase for men. It stays the same. And while a first child has no effect on men's time in housework, a second leads to its reduction. So we're going backwards. Uh, Women's housework increases upon birth of first child. Um, Men's housework decreases 
Upon birth of second child, Australian researchers found evidence that men's time on routine housework declines as more children are born, suggesting that the gender gap in housework time widens as the demand for time on domestic work increases. So, um, you know, Betty Friedan famously said uh, in The Feminine Mystique, in 1963 that housework uh despite the availability of uh all of these machines that do our housework for us housework will just expand to fill the time allowed uh and lockman says that for men kind of the inverse happens even when there's more responsibility um this learned incompetence and all these social things that we've already talked about sort of uh lets their responsibilities shrink to fill the time allowed. Uh, So those are the three studies that I thought were the most interesting to mention. Um, Do you have any thoughts about those or or other uh, studies that you wanted to mention? I think you definitely nailed why the book is called All the Rage. Um, Those kind of studies make me make me real angry. (laughs) Um, Katie, what do you think? Um, You know, I that the one Victoria that you mentioned last about dads decreasing their amount of housework after a second kid comes that one is probably the most enraging to me because it it suggests a deliberate withdraw from an increasingly chaotic environment in which you could be helpful if you know what I mean like that that one is that one kind of made was the most enraging to me the the middle one that you mentioned about you know if it that the men will will do kind of more how upkeep maintenance tasks you know house what, what would be housework for an office if women aren't there but if women are there they won't that one um that one was interesting to me because i think and i'm trying to figure out the right way to say this like on the one hand, yes, that's extremely frustrating, and I feel like you know men should volunteer to do those things, and it's not fair for uh, uh, you know men to assume a woman will do it. Um, but one thing that I think that can sometimes happen, I don't know about the workplace because I haven't been in, in an office environment ever. I've only been in the academic world where that same thing does happen, just in different ways. But um, sometimes I think at, in the home, with particularly with parenting, there are sometimes I think when there are um, tasks that men are not volunteering for that. Um, but it's because it's a task that the husband or father, whatever does not think is essential. And the mom does. That's certainly true. I think, I mean, I don't have kids, but like I run into that in my own marriage all the time. Or like the thing where Lockman said, um, her husband said that he would get the kids food from the buffet, but, he didn't do it as quick as she would, so she was, like, ready to get up and fill the plates. Um, I see myself doing that all the time, and I think, you know, while I think it is certainly systemic, I do think it is something that maybe we can work on as individuals, too, and kind of recognize that, you know, we're, we're kind of defeating ourselves from both ends. But also, in terms of office housework, um, I have worked in a corporate office, and in my previous job, I actively would not um, empty the office kitchen dishwasher if there was a man standing there next to me like I would never open it first because I because I knew that that happens so I would just stand there and talk and you know if neither of us started then somebody else did it but I, I never was the first to open and put things away because I was like this is my tiny rebellion 
No, I mean, it, that's legitimate. And, you know, and I mean, I do I do that at home sometimes, too. I mean, there are things that I think are vital that David's like, really, I don't think that matters. And so he's not going to do that without being asked because he doesn't even notice it. But it also happens the other way. So there are times when he'll he'll want he's like, there's all these dishes in the sink and I don't like it that they're here. And I'll say, well, I mean, I was going to do them this afternoon, but if you want them done right now, you can do them. And he'll be like, OK. I mean, you know, I mean, so I try, I try to do that too. Like, you know, I try to help. So if I feel like I'm getting mad at him about something, I try to ask myself, okay, is this really necessary? But on the flip side too, if he feels like something is necessary and I don't feel like it's necessary in that moment, then he can do it. And that's fine. I think that's great. And I think talking about it in that very aware present way is good too. I I like that a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. We, we, I feel like, you know, and I, cause I try to, on the whole, like these men, they just don't notice. Would I expect any other human person who wasn't married to me to always notice things that I want done before I do them or ask for them to be done? And I think the answer is no. Like, I mean, when my parents are here visiting, cause they just were here this weekend. So I was thinking about this. When my mom and dad are here, I ask them to do things. It's not because I think they're incompetent. They're not going to notice otherwise. And if they didn't notice and do that thing, I wouldn't be mad at them. But if I if I'm doing something with the kid and I need something done with the other kid and my mom's there, I'll be like, hey, mom, can you do the thing with the kid? Or, hey, dad, can you do this thing? And I do it with David, too. And I don't feel like that is, you know, that's why I guess I don't I don't I, I don't often get mad that I have to ask David to help, because if I notice something sooner, I'll just say it. And I'm not going to stew about that he didn't see that it needs to be done the second I saw it needed to be done or before I saw that it needed to be done. I don't know. I think that's one thing that I think, um, you know, that um, that 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 particular study about, you know, men will volunteer for women's not there that I was thinking about with that. As far as the one with the little tiny kids, I don't really have much to say about that. I feel like that one kind of speaks for itself. But. That that one made me the most angry. I li- I literally had to put down the book and walk away and do something else and come back because I was like two. Like I if if that starts at two, like we're all just screwed forever. I I I just really like it was so depressing. Yeah, that one's terrifying to me as a teacher and as a mom. But like it's it you just see that and you're like they absorb everything. You know, from before they can even articulate it, before they can even show you that they're perceiving it, they're absorbing it. And that's that's really um, speaking of which, can you she talked a lot about like all of these different studies and all of these disparities and everything. But she also talked a lot about the effects that they have in our society in all different ways. Can you guys each give me one thing that you found that that hit you or that you learned or that you found particularly profound about the effects of this, this disparity between um, the expectations and the reality of shared work in the home, out of the home, whichever. Um, I learned that I am not alone in not having reality meet up to expectations. And that was powerful for me. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. something that I, I started keeping a list of all the secondary sources that she mentioned in the book. I didn't finish it because there were a lot of them, but um, at the point at which I stopped the list, I had read probably about four fifths of the secondary sources. Um, I've taught sociology of gender. I have read lots of these books. Um, I have, like I said, part of a PhD in women's studies as well. This is material that my brain knows, and yet my marriage falls short, I feel, of equity in a lot of the ways that she mentions. So 
while part of the book made me feel like a bit of a failure um, in terms of how I wish my marriage looked, um, it also made me feel good that other people were quote-unquote failing. It's not a failure. That's a bad um, cultural assumption in the same ways. I noticed, um, and Victoria, you talked about this earlier, that this is kind of a recurring theme on this podcast, but I was really struck by her, she says it several times, about how um, this idea of gender equality or the lack thereof affects men. Um, You know, we, most of us who are in any kind of, um, you know, Christian feminist or feminist um, discussions, we know that these things affect women. We know that they cause physical, mental, emotional, um, you know, work. All of these areas are affected negatively by this burden that's put on women, both mentally and physically. Um, but, but it's interesting to me that she several times talked about um, how much it affects men and about how there, there's a great quote um, by Michael Kimmel about um, that when you, you, separate yourself from, from caregiving, that you're cutting yourself off from half of the human experience um, with this notion of kind of traditional masculinity that doesn't take care of things. Um, and this is what we would call toxic masculinity. Um, and, and, it, and it hit me because... A, a term popularized mostly by Michael Kimmel. We yes. Should <laughs> um, good point. Um, but, it, but it hit me because it's also cutting yourself off from a large part of the Christian experience, right? I mean, first John three, 17 and 18, first Timothy five, eight, we are commanded. We are, we are told to care for others, both in our own family and without. And this idea that, you know, men don't have to nurture, men don't have to be caregivers is, is uh, untrue in, in a sociological standpoint. And also in a, in a Christian standpoint, you know, we should be at the forefront of showing love and compassion, you know, the fruit of the spirit, the, the fruits of the spirit are, are things of, uh, nurturing and, and love and care for other people that you, you don't just get to say, well, I'm a male. I'm not going to do that. Patience, kindness, gentleness, yeah, exactly. self-control. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I so, think so we I think, think, think of those as feminine virtues, right? But they're, they're Christian virtues. We shouldn't yes, limit them to Paul. the feminine yeah, sphere. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that was something that, that really struck me. Katie, what about you? There were a couple of things that I feel like I really picked up on the book. One of the things that I learned that I, and, and I, I mean, I say learned, I learned one particular way that, that some people make it work that I hadn't encountered before. But um, I found it really interesting when she was talking about um, in the book, the Voschans, the particular couple who wrote a book about equal sharing and how they had deliberately chosen to both work part-time outside the home so that, um, so that they both had the time to be in the home um, and doing housework too. And that for them, that's what they chose to do so that, right, they have one full salary put together. Um, but I really, that was really interesting. And I love that because I think it, um, it is also making a point that, that um, she doesn't make consciously. And, um, and I don't know that she would maybe want to make this point, but um, it, it kind of is addressing the idea that um, it, in some ways to do this, you have to be countercultural and not just counter, yes. not just counter essentialist culture, right? Gender essentialist culture. Obviously it's counter that culture, but also counter, I think for it to really work, you almost have to be counterculture in the sense of you almost have to reject in some ways like the ambitious climb to the top. Yes. American thing. You just, you can't do it. And, um, I mean, and, but 
you know, so that I, I thought was was really interesting because that was kind of like lurking in the background. Um, but the other thing that that I that and this is not something I learned. This is something that frustrated me is that um, in I, another thing that was very apparent to me through the whole book is that she seems to be saying basically that um, that doing menial tasks of housework are themselves kind of terrible and that therefore if a woman is doing any more of those tasks than her husband. She is already from the beginning disempowered. And that was really frustrating to me because she basically seems to be denigrating in a lot of ways the acts of caregiving, which is super frustrating because um, that is, I mean, not just because that's what I find myself doing, but the kind of, there's a kind of, to me, it felt like there was a subtext below all of this that was seemed to be suggesting that if you choose this voluntarily, then you've just been completely brainwashed by society. And you're not getting your fair share. Like it, it, I don't know. And that was really frustrating to me because that seemed very, that attitude seems very bound up with modern American capitalist ideas of to be successful is to be successful at work in an office making big bucks. And that was really frustrating to me. And I don't know. And I don't know what she would say if I asked her that question, you know, what, cause she doesn't ever even address it. And part of that's because she's working with a very specific group of people, people who both want to work full time mm-hmm. and that's they both, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, out of her purview but I do think that 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 is one of the weaknesses of the book is that there very much is this um you know I I was talking about it with David and he said what about people whose jobs is to do whose jobs are to do the menial tasks like what about those people you know um what about the parents who are both working full-time and they want to share parenting at home but also their jobs involve doing menial tasks you know I mean it, it's not as if I don't know it, it and, and like you said it, it also there's some issues of class at work here too um, and all of that stuff. But um, the only other thing about this book that I felt like really jumped out to me, and Victoria, this was what made me want to throw the book across the room. This was my throw the cr- throw the book across the room moment, is that I got really frustrated because I felt like that a lot of, and, and maybe this is a weakness of the, like you said, doing ethnography and so having all this data, but also doing interviews. The parts that to me were the most frustrating um, were the interviews because so often she would have, you know, be interviewing a woman who would say some variation of, well, you know, um, I, you know, I, he takes a long nap. He just feels like he can do that. He's entitled to take a nap. And then he tells me I should take a nap. This one woman was like, he he tells me I should take a nap, but it never happens. And I'm thinking, okay, that was the one where I almost threw the book across the room. Cause I'm thinking if you want to take a nap and a person says, to you, you should take a nap. You should say, bye, leave the room and go take your nap. I feel like it was frustrating to me because I feel like so many of these women were so, they had all this rage, hence the title of the book. But even when given the opportunity to assert their prerogative and to say, I'm going to do this for myself, would just not. And that was really frustrating. But they don't feel like they can. Like, I'm, yeah, I really related to that part of the book, actually. I did too. And I, because, I mean, and, Michael would tell you that this is true too, so I don't feel bad saying it, but he has to tell me to take care of myself all the time. He has to tell me to stop cleaning and take a bath. He has to tell me that I don't need to do all the things in the same day and I can take a break because I think I've really 
internalized this perfectionist idea that it is my job as the woman to keep all of the organizational balls in the air. And if you feel like you're a failure as a person, if you take the nap instead of washing the dishes, like you're not going to take the nap even if he tells you to. So I, I I, I'm sympathetic to that to a degree. So and I'm sorry. I, then in that case, I didn't mean, and I, and I hope it didn't come off like I was saying that that's, I mean, I, I felt terrible. Like when I, when I'm reading this, I'm, I'm frustrated because I'm feeling like, you know, you want to, but like you said, it, I guess that makes sense. And maybe I also am not necessarily acknowledging the degree to which it, part of my reaction to that is my personality too. And it's I was not, that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's because and, and I also it, this is it's really weird because I was raised by parents who were in some ways are very gender essentialist in terms of they think boys and girls like different things. And they, you know, and I used to get mad because my dad wouldn't let me cut the grass because it's man's work. On the other hand, somehow I also ended up with the same parents were also really, really very much about the mom needs to be taken care of because the mom works hard. Like, it, so it was like, my dad would be like, no, I'm going to do this for your mom. And like, and my dad would get, my dad was, she talked in the book about a dad who would get up with his wife every time he got up in the middle of the night with the baby, the dad would get up with the mom and just hang out with her. So she wouldn't be alone. My dad did that. Like, so I think I was from a very unusual family. And so yeah, she talks about that though, about like putting women up on a pedestal and talking about how great they are as a way to keep them in the roles that they maybe don't want to be in though. Um, but we, you're right. We do need to move on. Um, before we move on to the passing on segment, um, I just want to take a minute to talk about some steps we can take towards positive change. Um, cause I don't know about y'all, but I get frustrated when I hear, uh, an informed discussion of a problem, but then no real mention of any ways to address it. Um, so to begin with, I pulled out a handful of topics from the book and tried to frame them as a list of questions for self-evaluation. Um, if you think this might be an issue in your household or your partnership, or you're wondering how equal the division of labor is for you and your partner, um, um, here are some questions that you can ask yourself to kind of get an idea where you fall. I'm just going to go through the questions and we'll post them on the show notes as well. Um, who in your relationship has the leeway to forget something in parenthood or in household responsibilities? Have you and your partner ever explicitly discussed as expectations for division of household labor? How has that discussion borne out in reality? Has it changed after children or a job or over time? Who bears the responsibility for kinkeeping, for relational maintenance outside the home? How much of your household work is hidden versus how much is re recognized and appreciated or applauded? How much of your household responsibilities are scaffolded by the work of your partner? Do they have to set things up so that you can do other things? How much of your involvement in household work is discretionary? How much of it is just expected? What happens if you choose not to do a task? Does your partner do it or does it just remain undone until you go back to it? Do you notice when a task needs to be done or are you happy to help if it's pointed out to you? Those are just a few questions to spark discussion with you and your partner or to work through as an exercise in self-evaluation. And like I said, I'll put those in the show notes. Um, some other steps that are recommended in the book um, for positive change. Um, studies have shown that paternity leave and gender-neutral gender prenatal family education um, those are both really helpful in including men in family roles from the beginning. Uh, interesting to note that maternity leave is not. It's actually um, maternity leave by itself is shown to sometimes reduce paternal involvement. Um, but men getting time off when the baby is born and attending birth classes, child classes, parenting classes, um, those are all shown to have a positive effect in how much the um, 
the man is involved. Um, she says, to be relentless in articulating these issues, um, look for articles and post them, talk about this over and over. This is not going to get solved with one conversation. Trust me on this. I know from experience, um, but bring it up. I, I had an issue the other day where I was at a mom's group and we were chatting and somebody brought up the idea that isn't it funny that it's always the daughters that end up taking care of aging parents? Like, isn't that just so wild? And uh, and they were talking about all these examples. And I just kind of threw out there, well, yeah, that's because in our society, caregiving of all kinds is considered female work. And you want to stop a conversation in a hurry. <laughs> um, that that was a, they all got real quiet. But that's the kind of discussion that we, we need to kind of slowly introduce and, and bring some of them had never even thought about that before. They just thought it was a crazy coincidence. And um, so anytime that we can kind of point that out, it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, she also pointed out that men really have to take this on, um, that this really will jump ahead in our society when the men are um, taking ownership of this and really being aware of this. And the number one way to do this, I will say, is to read this book. Um, get a copy of it from your library and and read it yourself, whether you're a man or a woman, and then give it to your partner and and let them read it because it is eye-opening and it's practical and it's um, it has a lot of really um, insightful um, both stories and then ideas for, for moving forward. So, um, well, since we're going on to passing on, I'll go ahead and give my recommendations and then let you guys give yours. Um, I, first of all, recommend the, the article about this book on NPR, um, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, it was how I got introduced to this book. I read the article. There was an interview with Darcy Lockman, and it was fantastic. And if you don't have time to read an entire book, I know we're all super busy. It gives a great kind of summary of her talking points and um, some links and things like that. So I, I do recommend that if anything else, you can read that article that kind of summary in an interview. That's great. Um, and then there's an article um, in the conversation called Men Do See the Mess. Um, that is a fantastic study by three sociologists, uh, professors of sociology about uh, where they looked at whether or not men really are kind of dirt blind, as they say, or, or whether or not they actually um, do see the mess and, and who bears responsibility for that. And they did these studies where they showed pictures. And it's, it's fascinating and definitely worth seeing, especially um, if you're talking in a discussion with somebody about um, essentialism and whether or not men just really are better or, or women are better at seeing what needs to be done versus men. Um, they kind of debunk that with their study. So, Victoria, what about you? What do you have for us? Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the secondary sources that um, Darcy Lockman cites is Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Um, this is a book that owes a great deal of its DNA, um, both in terms of subject matter and methodologically in terms of its reliance on interviews to The Feminine Mystique. Uh, in fact, the introduction of this book is called The Problem That Has No Name, which is, of course, um, also the name of the first chapter of Friedan's book. Um, so I, I wanted to recommend a book that I was actually rereading at the same time I was reading All the Rage. Um, it's by my favorite marriage historian, Stephanie Kuntz. Uh, if you haven't read her work, everyone should read all of it. She's incredible. Um, this particular book is called A Strange Stirring, The Feminine Mystique and American Women at the Dawn of the 1960s. And it is... Uh, a biography of the reception of the feminine mystique. She goes back and interviews um, women
women who read the book in the 60s and also their daughters and talks about kind of the history of the book and the way it affected um, women in the second half of the 20th century. Um, some things that we, you know, see as outdated about it, things we still have to learn from it. Um, there's also a great deal of discussion of um, housework and gender equity as well. Uh, so that's my recommendation. Stephanie Kuntz's A Strange Stirring, The Feminine Mystique, and American Women at the Dawn of the 1960s. Great. Thank you. Katie, what about you? Um, what I'm recommending tonight is a book that I read this summer. Um, and as best I can tell, it's not mentioned in the Lockman book. I went back and looked at the citations again, and I couldn't find it. Maybe it's there. I'm not sure. But um, it's called Unfinished Business by Anne-Marie Slaughter. And Slaughter wrote a really famous article, I think in the Atlantic several years ago, about called Why Women Still Can't Have It All, and then turned it into the book Unfinished Business, and um, which was published in 2016. And she, um, I think it's a good companion book to Lockman's book for various reasons. One is that she talks a lot about the necessity for parent leave, maternity leave, paternity leave. Um, now, albeit for different reasons, but, um, you know, she, and she talks a lot about how workplace culture is not um, built around caretaking for for anyone and it hurts mothers the most um, but it's it, it that she talks a lot about her kind of steps forward at the end of her book are a lot to do with fundamentally transforming American work culture in ways that make it more um, appropriate and um, more friendly to caretaking tasks but um, one reason I think probably Lockman didn't mention her is because they kind of have in some ways fundamentally oppositional uh, thesis statements with their books because Slaughter's whole point in Unfinished Business is she says that the the women's movement or the goal of having it all is unfinished because her contention is that um, a woman really a woman can't have a, a high-powered full-time career and also have a spouse with a high-powered full-time career and also have children and everything goes smoothly. Um, she actually makes an argument in Unfinished Business for someone needing to be the default what what Lockman calls the default parent, or she calls the anchor parent. Um, and she now she's not saying it should be the woman. So she's not coming at it from an essentialist point of view. She says it can be the dad or the mom. And in her case, in her family for a, while, a long time, it was her husband. But she kind of is arguing that someone, um, someone needs to be the primary parent. And Darcy Lockman's whole point is that no, we can divide this down the middle when we should. So that's why I think they're good to read together. Because they were, you know, they were published just a couple of years apart. Um, and they are speaking to a lot of the same issues, but coming to totally different conclusions. And so I think it's really interesting. So that's um, Unfinished Business by Anne-Marie Slaughter. That's great. Thank you. Thank you both so much. I Enjoy that conversation very much. Um, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria and Katie, I'm Ilea Danner-Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll be doing our Halloween crossover special on St Stephen King's novel, Carrie. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.